All right, good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Pastor Paul. I'm the lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarne. So glad that you are here with us this morning. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 13. You know, when you're on a plane ride of 12 hours from Atlanta to, to Istanbul, of all places, you kind of have to figure out what do you do during that time? I mean, besides after you read and fast and pray and all that sort of stuff, right? And so, so thankfully, um, Turkish Airlines offered this full allotment, this menu of hundreds and hundreds of movies to choose from. And Susan said, oh, that, that looks like a good one. Let's watch that. And I was like, well, what's the name? And literally, it is Jerry and Marge Go Large. And I was like, that does not sound like a timeless classic, all right? But it's starring Brian Cranston and Annette Bening, who are two of my favorites, and it's based on a true story. And after I watched this, I can honestly say it's probably my favorite movie of the year, certainly much better than that horrible Marvel's flick they just released. But anyway, it's a true story. It's about a couple from Michigan, of course, Jerry and Marge. And uh, Jerry has just recently retired. And Jerry's like a lot of men who have retired he doesn't know what to do with all of his time. He's, he's quite bored. He fishes, he hunts, but he's kind of a CPA dude by trade. And so he starts to channel his energy into figuring out how the Michigan State Lottery works. Now, this is a true story. And he figured out, he wasn't cheating the lottery. He just figured out through all sort of mathematical equations and spreadsheets and sine and cosine and tangent. I don't even know what that stuff is, but you know, he figured out that this is how much it pays out. This is when it pays out. And if you want to win, you bet on these numbers doing these things at this time. And he sort of figured out, quote unquote, the magic formula. And he and Marge, for a for a mild Midwestern couple, began to make a lot of money. Now, this, that, that's, that's the backdrop of the story. What the, what the story or the movie is really about is how their lives were so transformed by the fact that they had found, finally found something upon which they could make a sure bet, a wager that would pay off every time. And the story is about how they would begin to gather their friends and their family. And this sort of secret was let out over the whole town. And they began to dominate their, their, their conversations and their relationships and their priorities and everything that they did. And, of course, this had a lifespan, right? I don't want to tell you what happens, but it had a lifespan. It didn't last forever. But the whole point was that by... By coming upon this secret truth, this secret knowledge, so to speak, it transformed everything about their lives. Nothing was ever the same. Now, in our text this morning, we're going to be looking at three parables of Jesus. And what we find in these three parables is Jesus's answer to this question of what, what is the surefire bet? What is, what is the one thing that you can count on guaranteed a definite response, a certain future, a fixed outcome? Because let's be honest, 
That should, wherever we are religiously, whether we think we're religious or not, that should get our attention, right? Because all of us, it seems like the world is on a search for something sure, something, something that we can count on, something, something that we can wager will yield a certain result. And I don't just mean financially, I mean maritally, relationally, vocationally, with our, with our families. But so oftentimes those things that we find that we think are going to give us the payout in the end, we all know at some point down the line, just like Jerry and Marge, it stops paying out. But Jesus says, I have one thing that I want to tell you about. One thing that if you truly know its value, if you truly understand what it is that you're entrusting yourself to will consume your life. It will transform and change everything. It will shape your priorities. It'll shape your relationships. It'll shape the way that you spend your money. It will shape your personal habits. And what is this thing that Jesus wants to talk to us about? Well, of course, it's the kingdom of God. And that's what he has been preaching and teaching on for these last several chapters in Matthew. And it's a good time to remind ourselves why Matthew has put together this biography of Jesus the way that he has. Matthew is intent on showing us that Jesus Christ, in fact, is the true king. That he's God's long-awaited, long-anointed Messiah. That he is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. He is everything that the people of God in the Old Testament have been longing for, praying for, hoping for. And as king, just like any good king, he has come to establish his kingdom. And what Matthew's shown us is that there's actually two phases to this kingdom. See, the first phase is that Jesus comes not as the conquering king, but as the suffering king. See, he comes as a sacrificial king to lay down his life. You see, before he can usher in the fullness of his kingdom, that won't do any good if his subjects, you and I, are at odds with him. If, if our hearts aren't right, if we're in rebellion to the king. And so Jesus comes and does what we could not do. He lays his life down on the cross. And this is part of, of him establishing his spiritual kingdom in our hearts and minds. However, and this is where we're going to get to this morning, there is a second phase. There is a second phase to this kingdom. And it's the one we all long and hope for, right? This is, this is the eternal one. This is when Jesus returns in power and glory and where heaven and earth become one. Where God's will on earth is done as it is in heaven. Where there will be no rival king. Jesus will be the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. All will be made right. Everything that has been undone will be made done. All that is sad will go away. There'll be true peace on earth. But the key question that Jesus wants to press in here, and it's what he's been pressing these last couple of chapters, is how do you and I live in that tension? How do we live in that tension of these two 
of these two phases of Jesus' reign. We're, we're between the two, right? Jesus has come and established his rule and his reign in men and women's hearts and lives and transformed their heart. But man, we still have to live in this world. We, still, we, we are still in occupied enemy territory. We still have to live in that tension of, of the already of what Jesus has done, but the not yet of what he one day will do. And at that intersection is faith. At that intersection is trusting in Jesus and what he has what done and what he is doing and what he has promised to do. To use a, a Lewis term here at the Advent season, Aslan is on the move, which means daily we have a choice. Are we going to live our lives according to merely this day? Or do we live our lives according to not just this day, but that day as well? Where are we going to set our hopes? What's going to occupy our heart, our mind, our attention, our imagination? We're all going to build our lives on something. And Jesus says, I have the one thing that you can count on above anything else in this life. It's my kingdom. And that's where we're going to go this morning. So we're going to be reading out of Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. And if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word together. Jesus is speaking. Verse 44, he says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Let's pray. Father, whether we know it or not, what we desperately need this morning is to see reality for what it truly is. And so, Lord, we confess it, it's hard this time of year. There's so much that clouds that obscures our, our, our spiritual vision. There's travel and schedules and family and gifts and priorities and busyness. But Lord, would you cut through all that? Would you remove the haze and by the power of your spirit, let us see truly the most valuable, dependable, trustworthy thing 
in all of life, and that is you and your kingdom. Lord, we ask for this and your help. In Jesus' name, amen. You may take your seats. Entitled this one, The Supremacy and Seriousness of God's Kingdom. All right, and so the two points will, will be exactly those. We're going to first talk about the supreme value of the kingdom. Why does Jesus say leverage everything for this? Secondly, we're going to talk about the serious business of the kingdom and how this, in fact, is to shape every facet of our life. That if we truly see the kingdom as it is and its value, we, we can't walk away unchanged. It makes a claim. It will begin to show up in every facet of our lives. So that's where we're going. Let's look first at the supreme value. And Jesus here narrates a little story, a parable. And let's look back at the text in verse 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, this just, let's be honest, seems a little obscure. I don't know how many of you have been working in your yard and found Blackbeard's pirate chest or whatever, right? And this seems a little, let's be honest, it seems like a little Nicholas Cage-ish, a little national treasurist. I love those movies. I just got to be honest. I, just, I do love them. And, and, but in reality, one, let me just say, I had somewhat of a similar experience when I was little. So when I was 10 or 11, um, I lived in um, East Ridge, which is right outside Chattanooga. And one of the things you may not know is that Chattanooga was the site of major Civil War battles. So there was the Battle of Chickamauga, not Magua, Chickamauga, Lookout Mountain, Missionary Ridge. And where we lived was really right sort of the nexus intersection of all that. And so a friend and I were out in the backyard playing in the ditch, and we found a cannonball, a, a real honest-to-goodness cannonball. And we knew it was because all of our parents looked at it and said, that doesn't look very five and dimish. That you, what you have there is a real cannonball. I don't know how much it was worth because some kid in the neighborhood stole it, and we never saw it again, okay? You know how these things go, right? But in reality, this scenario was not that uncommon in ancient Israel, and, and let me explain why. If you read your Old Testament, you read your Bible, you know, and this is, this is the same for Israel 2,000 years later, but Israel was the nexus of many battles and military conquests. One battle after another, one invading army after another, one empire rolling in, another empire rolling out. And so what would happen in the days before uh, safety uh, deposit boxes and those sorts of things is that you're a family, you're living in Israel, and the Assyrians are coming, or the Babylonians are coming. And what do you do? Well, you get all of your valuables, all of your treasures, your jewelries, your find this, find that, and you go hide them somewhere on your property. You go dig a hole, you go put them in a cave. But oftentimes what would happen is that these armies would come in, and, and, and now if they just kind of rolled through, then the coast was clearer, you would bring your items back out. But sometimes those people were deposed. Sometimes they were deported, they were, they were taken away. Maybe they died. Maybe they left their family estate never to see it again. 
and those treasures would remain hidden. And then Israel would come back into the land and somebody else would buy that land. They'd hire workers. And th this was not an uncommon thing. And so Jesus says, this is happening in this hired hand. And, and guys, you got to love the way Jesus describes this. He talks about him finding this treasure and then in his joy. Because I want you just to think back just for a second. For those of you who profess Christ, who claim to be Christians, I, I, I want you to remember that time when you found out there was more to this life than just you. There was more to this life than just what you could see, taste, and touch and put your hands on. There, there was more to this life than what was really on the horizontal. When you came to realize and it was like finding a treasure. It was like your greatest joy. There's more to life than this. There is another reality that transcends this reality. And this was the reaction of this man. And so it says that he goes and he gets everything that he owns. He cashes it all in, right? And he buys this piece of land in order to secure this treasure. Now, let me just say this. If you read the commentaries, all the egghead commentators really get off on these little rabbit trails and, well, this doesn't sound like a very ethical thing this man did. He should have told this landowner that he had found the treasure. Can I just say this? Get a life. All right, okay, that, that's not the point of the parable, okay? But if you want to go down that road, okay, first of all, this was not, this was, this was not something underhanded or deceitful. Um, this was a part of, it did not violate Jewish law. Um, in fact, most likely this treasure did not even belong, wasn't originally belonging to the owner of the field. If it was, he wouldn't have hidden it in the field, right? But again, that's not the point. The point here is that this man found something that he esteemed to be of inestimable value and it was so valuable to him that he was willing to give up everything for it. Now, the second parable, Jesus defines this treasure in a little more of a specific way, right? And he talks about the man who really kind of had the same journey, but he discovered this pearl of great price. Now, at the time, a pearl was the most valuable and esteemed of all, I mean, as, to use a Dave Ramsey term, it was the status symbol of choice, right? Um, it was esteemed, it was valued, these pearls, kings would crush them up into little dust and drink them. Don't ask me, I didn't do it. They would do this. It was like bringing out your best vintage of wine. But, but John MacArthur makes this point, I think this is really good, probably the, the, the easiest way for us to think about value of something like this is to think about our cultural equivalent, which would be what? Diamonds, right? Now, I, I didn't know this until I read this, but, but apparently 2022, the year 2022, was the year of the wedding, okay? 2.6 million weddings in 2022. I guess it was all the pinup sort of um, COVID sort of things that had kind of backed up. And undoubtedly, the status symbol, the currency of choice in getting engaged is, of course, what? The diamond. You see, De Beers, which is the largest diamond mining company in the world, has convinced 
all of you, all of humanity, that if you're a dude and you show up to your engagement with anything but a diamond, guess what? You're a loser, right? You, you, that, that's just the way it is. And diamonds, just like pearls in the ancient time, are hard to find, hard to mine, hard to cultivate. It can sometimes be very dangerous. Countries, by the way, fight wars over these things, and it's an earthly treasure. What is Jesus' entire point here? Okay. How much more, Jesus says, of value is the kingdom of God? And if we truly understood its value, it would be nothing to us to exchange everything and leverage everything in our lives in order to make sure we had that. You see, the kingdom of God, Jesus tells us in Matthew, is unchanging. It's, it's eternal. It's free of sin. It has no suffering. And one day when the kingdom of God when Jesus comes again, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven will merge. And this will be forever. This will be eternal. It will be unchanging. Very interesting, right? That when we think about the kingdom of the world, and we're reminded of this in Advent, so much of what we have vested our lives in is just so temporary. You know, there, 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 there's, in fact, you could say life is just this constant, from the world's perspective, grasp at anything with certainty, anything with stability, anything in order to, to, to put our money down on that for a sure and certain thing. And Jesus says, there's only one thing in this life that you can be sure and certain of, and that is me and my kingdom. Because being a, um, a, a movie guy, one of my favorite movies, maybe the greatest trilogy of all time, and this is not in dispute, by the way, is Back to the Future. Do we understand, okay? And one of my favorite, um, my, 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 my favorite film in that series is the second one, where old Biff, if you know, you know, right, old Biff, gets the sports almanac book, gets in the DeLorean, which is, let's be, awesome, be, 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 let's be honest, quite cool, and goes back and gives the sports almanac book to young Biff, right? And so young Biff knows between 1950 and 2000 who is going to win every major sporting event. And what does he do? He puts it all on those things. It's sure, it's certain. And Jesus says, and this is what we really want to pray, church, for spiritual eyes, for spiritual discernment, for, for clarity, to see reality as it truly is. Jesus says, if you just understood the nature of the kingdom, its eternality, its unchangeableness, the fact that, that, that I've come to do for you what you could not do for yourself. The, the, the fact that, that 
I've come to fix all that is broken, as we sang about this morning, to, to bring shalom, to bring wholeness, to, to, to bring peace, to make everything right. If you truly understood the otherworldliness of this, it transformed everything you do. Transform how you spend your time, how you spend your money. It would transform your relationships, the conversations you would have with your neighbors, your friends. Nothing would remain unchanged. That's the point of these two parables. That when we, and guys, isn't this exciting? When, when you, a lot of times what we would describe as radical, okay, or that guy's a Jesus freak, or he's taking his faith a little too seriously. Maybe we just need to recalibrate and say, maybe, just maybe, that guy or that woman has seen the kingdom. Just maybe they've seen things as they truly are. That's the supreme value of the kingdom. Let's go to the second point. The kingdom is also serious business. All right, let's look at verse 47. I'm going to read down through, through verse 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, to which you might say, thank you, Pastor Paul. That's a really great Advent little set of verses there, okay? Now, these verses do echo something that Jesus taught us last week in his parables, right? And it's simply this. Between the first and second comings of Christ, there are going to be what, what Jesus calls the wheat and the weeds, right? Or the wheat and the tares. Those who respond to this message of the kingdom and entrust their lives to it and to the king, which is Jesus, and those who don't. Those who don't entrust their life. Those who say no to the kingdom. And, and part of the complications of living in this life is that we're all sort of mingled together on earth, right? You heard me say this last week. There's not a special section at Dope Campbell Stadium for the weeds and one for the wheat, all right? We, 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 you're, you're not assigned to sections in your neighborhood. Those who know Jesus, those who don't know Jesus. You're, you, don't, you don't have separate office space or separate bathrooms. I know that's not the way it works. We all live life together, one giant mass of humanity, believers and non-believers alike. And of course, this reality of believers and non-believers alike living together happens not just in the office or the neighborhood or the sporting event, but maybe it happens in your marriage. Maybe it happens in your community group. Maybe it happens in your family around the Thanksgiving or holiday table. And, and the reason we learned last week that Jesus does not come and bring judgment now because a lot of times that might be our instinct, right? God, just fix the problems of the world, wipe out the wicked, wipe out the, the evildoers, set things right. As Jesus says, right now, 
there is a truce. Right now, I've given a reprieve. Right now, I'm giving time because if I wiped everybody out now, don't you know that in those tares and those weeds, there is wheat? To use Paul's terms, don't you know that there are still many in this city who don't know me, but who will? Just imagine if, if that was God's posture and attitude towards us when we didn't know him, when we weren't embracing his kingdom. No, no, no. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It, it, it's God wooing us to himself. And so God says, no, no, no. The final judgment is yet to come because I'm waiting. And this is an opportunity in waiting to, for two things to happen. Number one is for those who are not a part of the kingdom to come and trust the king. To come and find refuge in Jesus. And it's an opportunity for those of us who know Jesus to extend that gospel message. And so Jesus says, we wait. But this text reminds us of one additional thing. This waiting will not be forever. A lot of you guys have been following the, the events in the Middle East. And recently there was a ceasefire, a, a truce of sorts between Israel and, and Hamas. And this was, of course, to allow humanitarian aid to come into the Gaza Strip. It was to allow the exchange of hostages. But what you were reminded of, even in the middle of the truce, is a spokesman for the Israeli military would always remind everyone, but this is only temporary. We have unfinished business to attend to. There are evil terrorists that still must be defeated. The, 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 the rule of order and peace have not yet extended as far as we would want it to. And this third parable is the equivalent for what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, there is a truce right now that the door is wide where I am inviting, I am calling everyone to be a part of my kingdom. I, I, I am your gracious, loving, savior king. But one day, that truce will be over. And I will come and establish my kingdom. And I will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. And just as there will be an eternal reward of knowing me forever, there will be an eternal punishment of those separated from God in hell who do not. And that's a, and that's a sobering reminder, right? That, is, that's, that's, that means this kingdom thing is serious business. You, you've heard me oftentimes say that depending upon what era the, the church is living in makes it more or less difficult for the church to embrace certain parts of the, of the, gospel, message, uh, of the gospel message and Christian truth because of the culture we live in. There, there, are certain, there are certain times when certain biblical values seem less palpable than others. 
And guys, this is certainly true when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, heaven and hell in the 21st century. See, one of the, one of the, one of the deceptions that we can fall into, and, and we won't say it like this, but this is kind of functionally how it works out. We might say, well, oh, well you know, oh, Pastor Paul, I, I, I mean, I know Jesus is, is the way, the truth, and the life. I, I, I know that he's the only way. I know that he's, he's the king of kings. But, but just to be honest, I've got Jesus, and I'm happy, and I'm content, and I'm just doing my thing. And everybody else, they can kind of do their thing. Let them be them. I'll be me. I'll stay in my lane. Let's don't bother each other. Let's don't, let's don't, let's don't, let's tiptoe. Let's round off the rough edges. Everything is going to be fine. And guys, in his loving grace and mercy, Jesus in this parable reminds us everything is not fine. You see, the king is coming back. And as long as his subjects are in rebellion against him, that is not going to be a happy reunion. That is not going to be a, a, a joyous moment of reconciliation. And Jesus says, that's why I'm, I've, I'm, I'm keeping my powder dry. And out of my love and kindness and grace, I'm inviting you to be a part of the kingdom now. Because one day... I'm coming back. One day, I'm separating the righteous from the unrighteous. One day, I'm making everything whole and new again. Christian, if there's one thing we need to be reminded of, if you were someone who says, yes, Pastor Paul, I've, I've placed my faith in Christ, I'm trusting in him, I, I believe in the kingdom, don't be deceived. Jesus is not simply one valid choice among many valid choices on a religious multiple choice test. Jesus says, I'm not a king, I'm not one of the kings, but I am the king. And I've come and I'm building my kingdom and I'm, I'm, I'm inviting you to be a part of it. I've laid my life down for my subjects, come to me. One last thing and we'll be done here. We come to the end of this passage and, and Jesus says something a bit obscure. Look at verses 51 through 52. He asked him, have you understood all these things? And that's an important question for the disciples because often, let's be honest, they did not understand these things. So he asked them, do you understand these things? They say yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. What, what, what does this mean? Because we've seen this in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Almost every time Jesus mentions the scribes, he's referring to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And it was to them that the treasure of the old covenant had been given, the word of God. And it was their job to steward that word, to lead the people in faithfulness. But, but what we've seen over and over again is that this became a point of self-righteousness, self-justification on the part of the Pharisees, where they loved Torah 
more than they loved God. And because of that, they built a man-made religious system that kept the people under oppression and elevated themselves. And the reason that they rejected Jesus was because they did not realize or failed to realize or didn't want to realize that he was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. He had come as a direct prophetic fulfillment of everything the Old Testament had been pointing to. He was the new treasure. And in failing to offer the new treasure of Jesus to the people, Jesus says, I'm done. But he says, you scribes, you disciples, you four oaks, you're, 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 you're the new people. And I'm doing a new work in you. And you are to be my faithful witnesses. And you are to bring out of your storehouse, out of yourself, the treasures both old and new. Meaning the, 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 the treasure of my word as finding fulfillment in my son, Jesus Christ. And as we bring that forth, we unlock the key, the mystery, the code, whatever you want to call it, for everything that would baffle and confound us. Jesus says this life, this broken world, only makes sense viewed through the prism of me, that I've come to build my kingdom. I've come to reconcile sinners to me. And as I reconcile sinners to me, there is a promise, and it's an Advent promise. It's, it's the promise that we look to when we come to the table each and every Sunday, that Jesus has come back once, but Jesus most certainly is coming back again. And he is going to finish what he started. There will be peace on earth. There will be shalom. Everything that was sad will be made unsad. Everything broken will be put back together through and because of his work and death and resurrection for you and me. So, I'm about you just to spend a moment or two reflecting on these three parables, preparing your hearts to come to the table, and I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward to prepare to serve communion.